Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Oswego Alumni Podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Oswego Alumni Association, SUNY Oswego, or any of its officials. Email us with guest ideas or any other feedback at alumni at oswego.edu. Welcome to the Oswego Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Dee Perkins. Today, we're talking with an alumnus who was named by Forbes as the second most powerful woman in sports. She's worked at some of the biggest brands in the sports world, building licensing and consumer products programs. She began her career at the NBA, where a little known player named Michael Jordan set the world on fire, and then moved on to the home of the rock the WWE. And we're also going to throw in a little mention of a world-class event called the 2014 Super Bowl. We are so excited to talk to Donna Goldsmith, class of 1982. Welcome, Donna. Hi, Dee. Thanks for having me today. 80s girls. Let's hear from the 80s girls. 80s. Some of your viewers, many viewers weren't born in the 80s. I'm a, I'm a little old now, but I'm still hanging in there. 80s was a great time for music, great time to be in college. It was it was a really very, very yeah, different it was time. It's fun, it fun, fun time. One of my favorite things in researching you is even though you've made it to the height of the sports business world, you've always had time for Oswego. Tell me the origin story of how you started at Oswego. Um, thinking back many years gone by uh, my cousin went to Oswego and it was the time to to look for college figure out where I was going to go and my parents were pushing Binghamton and Albany because they were they were the place to go for the Long Island kid that was going to go to a SUNY from my high school anyway and having gone to Oswego to visit my cousin Stephanie I loved it I said this is where I'm going mom and that's as simple as it is. And I ended up starting, when was did I start? In fall of 78, I went up to Oswego for the second time because I had visited her and was prepared to kick butt. And here I was. And frankly, I cried my whole first semester. <laughs> I was such a homebody and I really missed home. It took me a semester to find my place, to find my friends. And then I loved it from then on. What dorm did you start at it? I lived in Oneida with a girl that I knew from Long Island that I had met that we didn't end up staying together. We were oil and water, but at least it was a little piece of home having her there when I was having such a rough time that first semester. What did you, um, by, wind, what did you wind up majoring in? I was communications major and a Spanish minor. Um, I thought I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters, but I really preferred more of the interpersonal the classes that were not so much on the advertising and promotion side, but more about how to get things done. And it, for me, it felt more operational. And as I, we go on and talk about my career, that's ended up what I ended up doing. Surprise um, question. Did you take classes with Dr. Betts? He was not there when oh. I was there. Okay. I was there before you. So it was trying to think Dr. Smith was one of the major teachers there. Nola Heidebaum was there, who I still speak to to this day. Fritz was there, um, who I also speak to, but he was more on the media side and his soon-to-be wife after that. Nola was more on the interpersonal and the sort of the marketing and the business side, I would say, of communications. I always say that Fritz saved my life because when everyone said you couldn't be a radio disc jockey, he said, all right, here's how you can. 
And he's amazing. He's so amazing. I'm, I'm so blessed that I got to meet him. I feel right. the same. I feel the same. So you graduated from Oswego. Wait a minute, though. Before we get out of there, you love Oswego. There must be a reason. Was there a crowd you fell in with? Was there, you know, a dorm group that you hung with? There usually is some some kind of group that you find that that makes you love the college. You know, it was a little of everything. I found my way. I was very much not a party girl. And what's so ironic is that two of the friends that I made for by the second semester were these two crazy party pothead guys that I reacquainted with one last year and it, it just wasn't the same. But but they became such good friends. And I will tell you that my two best friends now are both from Oswego. And I think having those relationships and finding my, I just had to find my people and I found my people. So all, most of my closest friends are still from that time when I was in Oswego. Of course, I, I made friends after that. It's, it's many, many years gone by. But my two very best friends are both from, from my first year or my first and second year of SUNY. And I will you know, I cherish that. I cherish their friendships and, and I'll never forget it. You want to give them a shout out? Patty and Fran and Karen. Love you guys. I love this. I, love <laughs> I, ha I have a group chat of 14 people, all radio people. That oh my God. I love that. I don't have 14. Definitely. But that's amazing. It, yeah, we it really made for these friendships that I don't know why. I'm not really sure why, but we all have that affinity and that love for, for SUNYO. Yeah. So you graduated and you started out at Revlon as a secretary, I which I, I love. Was, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was a secretary. I never thought, you know, who wanted to be a secretary? But back then, there were no assistant jobs. It wasn't everybody knew how to type because keyboarding is just life. Nobody knew how to type and I was a speed demon and it got me a job as a secretary. So I love that. I started as a secretary too. And my question is, is there something that happened to you or you learned from that experience that kind of sticks with you to this day? Yes, I had two managers and I was green. I mean, here I am coming from school to the business world. I thought um, Revlon was going to be so glamorous, which, by the way, it was not. But the two managers that I had couldn't have been more different. One was kind and teaching and mentoring. And the other one was all business and get your shit done, basically. And it, it sort of taught me both ways of doing business, but the way you can get more out of, you know, it, it, honey, honey will do it. The bees come to honey. And it was a real teaching moment for me. I don't think I realized it at the time that it was such a teaching moment. I was more, okay, I've got to figure out what I'm doing here. I have this new job and I've never really worked in this in, in a business environment. I had worked through my years of, of school and high school, but this was different. And so I think at the back of my mind, I always remembered, well, there were the two Lindas. They were both named Linda. And one just gave me direction and and was thought-provoking. And the other one was get your stuff done. And not, I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad way, get your stuff done. She was just no crap. And no, the kindness wasn't quite there. 
But I learned from both of them. And again, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I took it with me. And so you started looking for a job uh, five years in and you go to Swatch and then you see an ad in the newspaper that turns out to be the NBA. But the joke is, what's a newspaper? The newspaper, (laughs) what are ads in the newspaper? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was at Swatch for two and a half years. It was really, it was fun. It was when Swatch was really first introduced to the public and and it was a novelty product. People were slapping four or five swatches on their arms. But I was working on everything except the watches, which seems like a weird thing, but they had a lot of other products at the time. But it was run by a company that was based in Switzerland and didn't give enough care and attention to the States anyway. So after two, as you said, two and a half years, I said, I think I'm ready to move on. And I would get the New York Times on Sunday and there would be these advertisements for jobs. And of course, that doesn't exist anymore, hasn't existed probably for 10 years. But there was a tiny little ad that said sports league seeking package goods marketing operations. I didn't know what that meant. I wasn't a sports fan. My dad was um, a huge Yankees fan, a Giants fan. So I thought, oh, let me see what that is. He'll be happy. And I answered the ad. And shortly thereafter, I got a call on my answering machine saying, hi, this is Bill at the NBA. We got your resume. We'd like you to come in. And I walked into the, uh, I studied up. Okay. I know nothing about basketball. I know nothing about sports, but when I went in there and I later found out that the reason they had me come in is they had this many resumes that were sent to them from this ad But the majority of them were, yo, I know sports hire me. And mine was, here's my career at Swatch Watch and Revlon. And I was still young. I was 30 years old. But I thought I had this great background. And that's what brought me into the door at the NBA, that that I wasn't the, yo, I know sports hire me person. So is it true they get you in there and they bring out this poster of NBA players and ask you to name them? Oh, my gosh. T. There's a huge poster, huge, with a bazillion guys on it. And now my heart is pounding because the guy knows I'm not a big sports fan. And he points to one, no clue, points to another. I think we got to the fourth one, which was either Michael Jordan or Larry Bird, something that everybody knew who it was. And I said, oh, well, that's, you know, whichever one it was. And he said, calm down. I see my face was red because I knew I failed the test. And he said, we're not hot. We wouldn't be hiring you for your sports knowledge, obviously. We brought you in because of your background. And we want to continue talking to you. And that was the impetus for my next interview, which was with, I think, the president of NBA Properties at the time. So took a big breath. I was very relieved because I really thought that was when they were showing me to the door. And they did not show me to the door. So they bring you in and how do you, how do you start? What is the first thing that you're working on? What I did when I first got there, they said, you're good. So they hired me ultimately, obviously. And I was what was called manager of new business development. So I had no idea what the new business development was, but it was trading cards. And at the time people were holding trading cards in their, you know, in their attic that they thought they were going to send their kids to college because they had Michael Jordan's rookie cards. And we made in a in my first couple of years at the NBA, $45 million in royalties for the NBA off these trading cards. I mean, the business was 
unbelievable. It didn't last forever, but this is what I walked into and I was working on. And it was incredible because this is what it was. I mean, the business was leaping and jumping and leaps and bounds. And I wondered when, in, and again, I was green in my second year when David Stern, the then commissioner who has since passed away, came in with a bonus check for me, which was maybe you know $30,000 that I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. By the way, he should have been giving me a million dollars for everything that we had done for them. But it was it was an incredible time to be with the NBA because it was, you said, Michael Jordan and it was Larry Bird and it was Magic Johnson and it was the dream team going to Barcelona. It was an incredible, incredible experience. And I learned a lot about the business of sports and how to, I mean, this was an entertainment that was riveting to Everybody up watching on the NBA at NBC at the time. It was it was just an amazing, amazing ten year experience for me. Just incredible. So the kids who are watching who think, okay, I'm gonna, I really want to work in the NBA. There, there are fans out there who know a lot more players than you or I. Give people an idea. How much FaceTime do you wind up having with athletes, and what are you doing the rest of the time? Very little FaceTime with athletes at the NBA. It was different at wrestling, which I can tell you about in a minute. But at the NBA, if you were a senior executive, maybe later on, you would have some some FaceTime. And, and look, I met Michael Jordan. I met Magic Johnson. But it wasn't like they would know my name if they saw me in the street the next day. Um, I was on the merchandising side. And the, on the merchandising side, we worked with, of course, a, a huge photo library of every that represented all the players and the history and books. And at the time, you know, there was very I don't even think the Internet was around then. So it was more about researching and what are we going to put on the back of a trading card or on a Mattel toy that we were creating? What kind of copy are we going to put on the back? But it was all research that we would do. We wouldn't sit with the players and say, OK, well, we're creating your item. What do you want on there? Um, so it was more about the, it was business and it was not about ogling and ogling at these players that you see playing on the hardcore every day or every, you know, several times a, a week. It wasn't about that. It was about the business side. And if you did have the opportunity to meet with a player or for example, here's one I'll give you. When Shaquille O'Neal was a rookie, his father was taking him into to the NBA and they asked us to give him a tour of the NBA offices. That was fairly atypical, but he came into my office with his dad and wanted to know about what I did. So I, I took him through it and I didn't know Shaq would be what Shaq is other than I was like looking up to this gigantic guy and I'm a tall woman, but that was the, again, the exception to the rule. It was more player relations. will deal with the players and we will deal with the business on a day-to-day -day basis. Very, very different. You do have a cool story about the WNBA and their basketball. Oh, my gosh. You really did your research. So when the WNBA, which is now, my God, I think it's 25, 30 years, was being developed, David Stern gave my team and me the assignment of come up with a ball that will be a little bit different than the NBA ball because we want it to be associated with the WNBA. And obviously, the most important thing, besides the use of the actual ball, is how it looks on television. Because, for example, hockey has a hard time 
because the hockey puck is so small and so fast, it's hard to see. And they've tried all different things to bring your attention to the puck, but it's hard. So David, one of the assignments was figure out how to make it work. And so we had the creative team and we had my team, the, the business team, and we had the television team. We all got together and came up with concepts for this ball. And we ended up going with this orange and sort of oatmeal colored ball. But before the ball was done, we had to do a TV segment to see that you really could see it and that it would work well on the television. So we called Madison Square Garden because we all lived in Manhattan and we were able to secure um, the garden, the basketball court for a short time before the Knicks games that afternoon. It was on a Saturday or a Sunday morning. And we had to get in there early and we brought the um, the cameras. The NBA had all their own cameramen. We even brought some NBC cameramen because the NBA was on NBC at the time. And we set up and I brought my staff from the NBA. I said, who can come? We've got to do some passing, some dribbling. We got to get this on the camera. So great. We brought people in on, I think it was a Sunday morning. It was really early. We were all half asleep and we started this game and Two seconds into the game, we realized that the paint from the ball is coming off on the floor of the garden. And there was a Knicks game that afternoon. So the operations director of the Knicks comes running out. You cannot dribble that ball. Even though the ball had been dry, it, was a, it wasn't a real production. It was a painted ball. And it was dried, but it wasn't totally dry, I guess. And our window was very limited. And so as we were bouncing the ball, paint paint, paint on the floor of the garden, which is not acceptable. So we had to create a passing game that had no dribbling in it. And you can imagine when we took the video back to David Stern, which was later that week, and Val Ackerman, who was the commissioner of the WNBA at the time, they said, okay, it looks great. Where is the dribbling? And we had to explain, no, well, we kind of screwed up a little. And, and David had a... Um, he would get angry on an occasional basis, but he did not get angry at that. He actually laughed because he was really pleased with what the outcome was. And we did, and I, I think they're still using the orange and oatmeal ball, although I'm not really sure, but they used it for 20 plus years. Spalding created it and developed it and sold it. And it was the ball that was associated with the WNBA. So somewhere there's a video of you playing basketball. <laughs> Right before uh, you know, I wish game. there was because uh, I don't know where it is. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see that operations manager come running in and screaming at us because it was, but it would have been a really fun thing to still have. And I don't know where it is. Of course, the most fun question is, can you play basketball? No, no, I am uh, the worst. I am semi-retired now and I play pickleball, which is so much fun. Um, but basketball, I am not an athlete and I'm a little bit of a spaz, frankly. Oh, that is a really funny video that's out there. Yeah. So you finish your time at the NBA. You see, is it, you see an ad for this? No, I it was um, Corn Ferry, the recruiting, the, the big headhunter company called me. And it was a woman I've known through business over the years. And Royce said to me, we have this job. It's in Stanford, Connecticut. I said, stop right there. That's WWE. I am not working for those lunatics. I'm going to be at the NBA for life. I never thought I'd leave the NBA after, you know, it was 10 years. And, and I just sort of talked to her because she was sort of a friend. I wasn't thinking of leaving. Um, 
And she said, why don't you just go talk to Linda McMahon? She's the person that that would be interviewing you. She's Vince's wife. And this was way before she was running for Senate or any of that. She was very involved in the day-to-day operations of the company. And I said, okay, I'll go. And, and so I schlepped up to Stanford. I was living in Manhattan. I was working in Manhattan. And I met with Linda, who really wowed me. She, look, our political views are extremely different now, but we still keep in touch. She is incredibly bright. She is lovely. She's everything that you would want in a manager. Now, I hadn't met her husband at the time, um, but I met with Linda and she said, ultimately, after meeting with some other people, we'd really like to have you here as our, I think it was SVP or EVP of consumer goods. But I'll tell you a funny story that also happened. I said to her, I loved meeting you. I hate the commute and I'm not leaving Manhattan. I said, is there anyone here that I can talk to who does the commute every day that I can get a sense as to the experience? And so she hooked me up with this guy who was based um, in Connecticut. They had a small New York office. So he met with me in the New York office. And he said to me, it's not bad. You'll get a car. The view is beautiful. The trees are changing. And I'm thinking, I don't care about the trees. But all right, at least he says it's not bad. Day one, it took me two hours to get up there. And day two, it took me an hour and 45 minutes. Now, I didn't have it down right, the times to leave. And I said to him later, Jim, you said it wasn't bad. And he said, they told me to lie. And I will wow. never, I will never forget that because I will never do that to someone. Wow. Never. But anyway, I lasted there 11 years, so I got over it. But that was, uh, that was tough for me. You never got an apartment up there? You, you kept doing the schlep? I slept all those years and, and, you know, but I learned how to time it better I ended up working late every night. So coming home wasn't an issue. If it snowed, I took the train up. So you kind of get used to anything. But the beginning of that, as I said to you, when I cried for my first month in Oswego, I am not great at change. So I think I had a hard time in my first three months there. But then I got over it. So when you walk into the WWE, what do they have you doing? Boy, it was, I'll tell you a funny story. It was fire. Uh, what is that that expression? Um, Grace under fire? Grace under fire, totally. Because my boss at the time was a guy that I still keep in touch with. He wasn't there that long because Vince fires everybody. But his name was Stu Snyder. He was from I think, Cartoon Network. He had done a ton of stuff in the licensing and business. And, and like I said, I still speak to him. And he brought me into a room. This is my first day. There's 25 people sitting around the table. He said, this is your staff. Bye. And he left me with these people who were shooting daggers at me with their eyes because their boss had been fired a few days, a few weeks, whatever it was before. There was one smiling, lovely woman who to this day is a very good friend of mine and has done, I brought her with me from company to company, but the other 24 people were impossible. And it was up to me to sort of change their minds about what a good boss could be. And I will tell you that I definitely did that. I went from an SVP of just certain areas of the consumer products area to adding a ton of business areas to my to what I handled. By the time I was moved up to COO, I had about 100 people working for me there in all the different areas. 
And I was known to be a really good, fun, but mentoring manager. But that was grace under fire. Yes. They threw me in that room and left. Here's your team. Wow. Oh my God, I will, uh, that is something I totally will never forget. So consumer goods, I mean, the WWE is classic in terms of consumer goods. We're talking everything from dolls to posters yep. to books. Yep, everything. This is all your purview. That was my perfume when I started. Now, I later took on video and video games and magazines and um, uh, the internet for them, uh, the, the web shop. But when I got in there, I will say that the it, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit because the deals that their previous um, EVP or SVP of consumer goods was really bad and made some really, really poor deals. Actually, he ended up going to jail because I that he was stealing on top of everything. So like I said, the bar was set pretty low for me to do better. But um, but the deals in place were really, really bad. And so one thing that is so important to me as I go to any new job is to be able to make a difference. And I was able to really make a difference there, not only with the team who had been working for this kook before, but in the business deals and in bringing so much more money to the organization. And that's what my role was. I mean, ultimately it was a profit and loss situation and, and they were not making a ton of money in that area prior to my arrival. So I'm proud to say, you know, we made a difference. Were your relationships at the NBA useful when you got to the WWE? Yeah, so definitely. You brought up um, the dolls or the toys. Mattel was my client at the NBA. When the toy deal came up for renewal, because again, it wasn't a great deal, at World Wrestling, we brought in many different toy companies to come and show us their stuff and to do a proposal. And Mattel was one of those companies and wowed Vince and Linda and Shane and Stephanie and the team and ended up becoming our partner. And it's still a partner at WWE. And I'm gone 10 and a half years or 11 years, whatever it is. So yeah, those, those relationships were really important. And by the way, relationships that I made all along the way have helped me in the next phase of my career because relationships are what it's all about and networking. And, and that was all really, really helpful as I progressed. So you asked me to come back to FaceTime with athletes at the WWE. I'm sure it was completely different. Yeah, it was different. So Vince allowed the talent, um, we called them talent, superstars, whatever, at WWE to have a real say in their merchandise. And so weekly, we would sit with them and say, okay, these are the new t-shirts. These are the designs. These are the toys we're looking at doing. Um, this is a game that features your likeness. And they were involved every step of the way. And because they were on the road so much, we had to go out to the road to the shows often, sit with them while they're eating their immense lunches. And we're showing them t-shirts and designs. It was, it was a little bit of a circus, but... They were very, very um, involved and and really interested in the process because they would get a piece of anything with their likeness on it. So whereas some of them were more difficult than others, most of them were very appreciative that we were including them in the process and were very helpful. So people yeah, definitely, a, they want you to name drop here. And so I'll ask you a softball question where I think you'll be able to name drop. Any of the wrestlers surprise you with their business acumen? A lot of them. I will say John Cena was incredible with his, he just knew what was going to work. Um, 
The Rock was just, you know, that's a given. I mean, look at where he is now. I didn't have that much to do with The Rock because he was already a rising star by the time I got there and was almost out and has come back periodically. But he had his finger on the pulse. Some of them weren't as business savvy, but they were creative. So if we show them a design, they'd say, you know what? I'd like the design to look like this and not this. And if they would wear it on TV, it was promotion. And that's what the T-shirts and the, the um, you know, whatever paraphernalia we designed, if they used it during the programming, we had nine hours of programming a week on television, that would sell the product. And it's a funny, I have a funny story that there was one character of Chris Jericho. His dad actually was a player on the, um, the Rangers years ago, but he was a wrestler. And Chris was what they called a heel or a bad guy. And one, but before he turned bad guy, we, he had always worn this silver glittery shirt with it open. And so we worked with, and Vince would be involved in this too. We worked with Vince on having that product, a silver glittery shirt shipped in. I produced, I had it produced in China because it was cheaper and having it shipped into our warehouse. And we must have ordered, you know, 5,000 of these shirts for when the orders would come in because he was going to wear it on TV. And that Monday, and the, the the people that would write, the, the writers of WWE would write up until the day of the story of the TV show because it was live. So that night I'm home watching because you did watch it. And Chris Jericho all of a sudden becomes a bad guy and he burns his shirt on television. He burns his shirt when I have 5,000 shirts being delivered to the warehouse that week. But nobody is going to buy a bad guy shirt. And so I went to see Vince. I said, Vince, we spent, you know, whatever it was, $100,000 on these shirts. You made him a bad guy. And basically the response was, doesn't matter, throw him in the garbage. And all these shirts ended up going to some charity because he was a bad guy. And the writers didn't care about the loss of money. They cared about the creative of the program. And so it was a little bit of this with the writers, but I didn't have a say. So all this product went in the trash. And I'm not sure, this was, I think, right before they became a public company. I'm not sure if that would have made a difference now, but it's a funny story about how the creative was really what transcended it all. It seems to me they could have just CC'd you on the script, you know. To... Well, they wrote it that night. They, oh. they changed it right, right up into the program. That's why I mentioned them. Yes, but they, they could have given me a heads up if they were thinking about it. Nope. So that Crazy. takes me to the next question, which is for you personally, you're working for these larger than life CEOs, you know, David Stern, Vince McMahon, probably Vince Moore. What was it like? on a day where you had a huge, you personally had a huge success. And what was it like on a day where you had maybe a big disappointment? Yeah. You know, I mentioned how David was quick to anger and there was only one occasion. I don't even remember what it was where I got my head handed to me. You don't forget that it happened once and it never happened again after that. And I think I was ill prepared for something. So you know, I learned and I moved on with Vince because he was more emotional and more like we said, a creative guy who was leading this organization, which was a business, you know, it was a business, but it was all about the creative to him. 
there was a, and I'll ne also never forgot this. There was a moment in a meeting where I knew I was right. I don't remember what the issue was. It was about a retailer who didn't want to pay us for our goods or take the, I, I don't remember exactly. And Vince sided with the retailer who was wrong, who was a hundred percent wrong and screamed at me. I mean, literally tore into me. And I knew I was right. You can, you can accept it when you know you're wrong and you made a mistake and you move on and you learn from it. But in this case, I was 100,000% sure I was right. And I walked away from that. And, you know, you, you don't want to say you're in tears because as a woman executive, it's the last thing you want to do. You never want to show. And I certainly didn't show it in the meeting, but I walked out of there and between being angry and upset and being pissed, I will never forget that because he made the wrong decision. Now, again, he's the boss. He gets to make the decision. And I learned after that, that there are ways to handle situations like that. Instead of getting so angry, which I was as he was yelling at me, I, I was angry. There are ways to handle it better. I did not handle that. So probably as I was getting angrier, he was getting angrier at me and, and it was just explosive. So live and learn, but I will never forget that. And and I do, again, I think Vince was incredibly creative, but David was more cerebral. And not being a creative person, it's harder for me to sort of deal with that end of the business. It just wasn't my my thing. It wasn't my thing. And And but again, as I said, live and learn. You get all sorts of different managers. It doesn't, you're still, they're still the boss and you're still the employee. So from the bad experiences to the wonderful experiences, you've had ah. so many, so many successes, so much great stuff happening. Is there something that came along that's, that's still really close to your heart? Yeah, there, there was, I mean, listen, being named to Forbes, a SUNY Oswego girl being named as, and 2009 as the second most powerful woman in sports was incredible. And that was during my time at WWE and everybody, there were lots of accolades and everyone was very pleased and, and it was all good and, and so proud of myself for that. And going back to the WNBA where you mentioned the ball bit where there I was quoted in the, the, Wall Street Journal on the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal, where there was an article about the NBA and the WNBA. Those are things that so pleased and so proud of myself for what I had done and accomplished in my career. And I think that would be me looking when I was coming out of Oswego. I knew I was ready to work and I was driven, but I had no idea that that, that is the kind of experiences I would have that I was so extremely proud of. And, and my dad kept a little file on me. I'll never forget when he passed away. I talked about how he had my file on all my accolades and my two sisters had no file. We won't really. tell the sisters that. Hopefully they're not she knew I said it to them. <laughs> I never forgot I said it to them. <laughs> so after the WWE, one of the big things that happened to you is you're the GM of operations for the 2014 Super Bowl. Now, is that like, event like are you in charge of all the things that happened during that event no let me tell you about this super bowl and my experience and the first time i had a really negative experience in a job i left wwe um 
life lesson, Vince gets rid of everybody and it was not working out. I was really unhappy, but I had a contract and the benefit of having a contract and having a relationship, I was hired eight years after being with the organization. So it wasn't like he didn't know me. So I was able to ask for things and I got paid two years after I left. I had benefits two years and I was making a nice salary. So I left on very good terms with everybody. I still speak to the family, not Vince, but I speak to the kids and Linda. And I took some time off and then it was time to look for another job. And I ended up at the operations and at the Super Bowl. David Stern actually helped me get that job. And it was a very ill-defined role. I didn't know what I was doing because the NFL offices, we weren't part of the NFL offices. We were the local New York, New Jersey office that they hire for every Super Bowl. They hire what they call a host team. And then the NFL, though, is based around the corner in New York. So it was a little of an unusual situation because usually if the Super Bowl is in Cleveland or wherever it's going to be in, they're going to have an office there because the NFL isn't there. Well, here we were with them in our backyard. My job was ill-defined. It was more, I will define it as more like a party planner. It was not the right job for me. And so eight months in, I went to my boss and I said, this is not the right job for me. I, I And I never did this before. I never had this experience. It was, it was made me feel bad, but it, but I knew it wasn't right. And he agreed. And the best thing was that I had a small contract there too. And so I got paid for six months. So now I'm getting two salaries for not working. <laughs> I went back to Florida for a few months until I ended up saying, I'm, I'm antsy now. I need to do something else. And I, I started um, consulting. So I'm going to jump. But Jump ahead. So you go to Think Geek, and then after Think Geek, sorry, we gotta we gotta skip ahead on some. Go ahead, skip ahead. Too many things. <laughs> uh, Tough Mudder. I I love Tough Mudder. This Loved is Tough Mudder. Such a great organization for anyone who who doesn't know it. I'm I'm not going to do it justice. Go ahead and explain what it is. Well, it, it it is now owned by Spartan, who was the competitor at the time. But it's basically a team. Um, it's all about teamwork. It's not about individual successes, but it's a team. I, I don't want to call it a race because it wasn't a race, but it was a team event where you went for five or 10 miles or kilometers um, in the mud and going over all sorts of different obstacle and challenges. And it was all about getting to the end if it took you an hour, two hours, three hours, but that you would work with your team to get there. So it was all about teamwork. And it was in the mud. I mean, it was muddy. I mean, we would have to get secure fields that were humongous because you had to create this event. I never did it. I was the oldest person in the organization and I never did it. I was about to consider doing it and then I left. The timing was right. I never did it. But, but I will tell you the people I worked with there and I worked for so many years, I've told you all about it were some of the finest, smartest young people I've ever worked with. And I, I loved it. I loved it. It was, it was such a different experience for me having been COO at WWE and then working in a huge loft type environment where you sit, everybody sits together. I was used to having two assistants and an office here. I was plopped in the middle of 30 people. It was so different. Again, have a hard time with different at first, but once I got adjusted, I I loved that job. What was your role there? 
My role started out as being a consultant on the merchandising side. And then when they asked me to stay, I took over international for them um, because we'd licensed the event out. I did merchandising. I did their web shop for them and I did partnership marketing. So I ended up taking over quite a bit of many, many different roles for them before I left in 2017, 2018, and then went on to do other consulting roles. So Tough Mudder is also, it's about teamwork. It's about leadership. Yep. You've been in that position in many of your roles in your career. Who is someone that inspires you? Someone you look to, to say, you know, that's the person I would like to be like. I think that my very first boss at Revlon is someone I has since passed away. I mean, it was so long ago. It's someone I think about often here I was green working for these two Lindas. I told you about the two Lindas earlier on. And he would come directly to me. I was a little kid, basically. I was 22, 23 years old. And he would, he didn't stand on pride. The man was an EVP at the, at Revlon. But he said, here's what you're going to take away from this experience. You may be here a year. You may be here three years. You may be here five years or longer, but you are going to learn up, up, up. And he take, and he never, I wasn't just the little kid, the secretary in the corner. It was about leadership and about kindness and about involvement and learning. And when I told you, that's the key, that's the thread throughout my, my life was all about learning how to be a better leader. If uh, the business would get done, but mentoring and growing these people that work for me was a number one, the most important challenge and the most the most important thing for me in all of these jobs. And he taught me that from 22 years old. And then I learned what not to do from so many of the bosses that I had, which I would balance it with what I learned there to what was actually happening in these other jobs and think, God, I want to be like he was. I want to I want to take away the positive. I don't want to be like some of these leaders are. And and there were many bad leaders I worked for. There were many, many. It happens. So that's you looking up, seeing who you want to who you want to be like. Now, let's look down is the wrong word. But are there people that you mentor that are kind of in your heart and, and you're so glad you had a chance to touch their lives? Oh, so many so many and they still call me and they call me for advice and they and like I said I'm pretty retired at this point I'll take a project or two but I'm spending half my life in Florida half up north I really am lucky to have been you know blessed with good jobs along the way so that I can retire and I can have two homes now and I'm so for someone called me the other day and was asking me for a friend of a friend is starting a company and wants to hire up. And so was asking me my advice. I had three or four people that over my course of my probably the last 20 years, not as far back as Revlon, that I'm happy to recommend and that I know will do a great job. And I did a, a post on LinkedIn a year ago um, about coming down. Now I'm, I'm done. I'm going to look to retire and I've been a working person my whole life. I've been in senior positions and this is hard for me. What do I do now? And I'm not married. I don't have children. Like, is my life still meaningful because I'm not a senior executive anymore? 
And after putting that post out there, I think I had 200 responses along with thousands and thousands of impressions where people were saying, you deserve it now. Give yourself that you're okay. You don't have to be a leader in a company to make a difference in this world. And that, again, change is hard for me. But having now sort of been on the downside, and again, we hate to use the word down, like you said, looking down, sort of on the resting side, I'm learning to appreciate that and still dip my toe in a little bit on an occasional basis. I, I You're not asking me for advice, but we talked about this right before we went on where, you know, be a professional volunteer. Yeah. You have to find, but you know, that's a tricky thing. You have to find something that you're willing to commit the time that you're now kind of focused on. This is my time, you know? So it has to be something that really reaches into your heart and you say, okay, I'm doing this for this reason. I think you're absolutely right. I did some boys and girls stuff in Florida. I was um, a mentor to to a kid in the boys and girls clubs. I'm looking at doing that again. And then I also have my SAG card because I have loved to be on extras on the soap opera, which I've done three times now. There's less soap operas now than when I was working and I did it. But I was on General Hospital, All My Children in Guiding Light as person with coffee cup. And so maybe that's something I'll do if I find, you know, I'd have to go out to the West Coast and do it, but might be something in my future. Oh my God, that is so shocking. For the person who loves being behind the scenes, you decided I want to be person holding coffee cup. Coffee cup, person with coffee cup. What 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 was the reason that you were holding that coffee cup? What was your backstory? As your well, I'll leave you with one. My sister never lets me forget this. At one of the shows, I was at a at a restaurant with my fake husband, and they told us to just you know you're having dinner at this restaurant. And I didn't watch the show, and I'm a big soap opera fan, which is why I worked at wrestling because it's all a soap opera. And they told us that a woman's going to come in and pour champagne on this guy's head. And you guys are going to be, oh, my gosh. And we only wanted to once, you know, budgets were low on the soaps at the sun. It was towards the end of my working. It was when I was at wrestling, I guess. Anyway, so they get us in place. Three, two, one. And the woman comes and dumps the champagne and the action happens. And that's it. The show was on when I was in Vegas on a business trip. And I called my sister from the airport and I said, oh, I just, I'm waiting for my luggage. I won $500 at the slot machine. And she said, well, take that money and buy yourself some acting lessons. I said, why? How did it go? She said, you did the, oh my God, before the champagne was even poured on the guy's head. (laughs) How disappointing. My acting skills are not so great. Luckily, nobody pays attention to the person in the, the back, but I guess I wasn't very good. Oh my God, that is so funny. See, but it's something you love. And so who cares? Love it. Love soaps. I know people on the soaps, a couple actors. So I was able to sort of get myself in there um, when I was working, but it's a fun thing. All right. So two last two last yes. questions. One of the things you still make time for is the Oswego Alumni Board. I know yes. you served on the board. I why did. is it why is it still important to you all these years later? You know, I had to stop at one point because um, my dad had been dying at the time and and it was, you know, there was a lot going on, but I did it for three or four years. I love Oswego. I tell everybody that Oswego doesn't get enough credit. When I came out of, when I was working and people would say, where did you go? I proudly would say I went to a SUNY, I went to Oswego. 
And when I look at the pe- the friends that I had in high school, I was friends with all the, the nerds, the really smart kids that were in the advanced classes. When I look at all of our careers, I was making more money than most of them. Um, and they went to Brown and they went to Binghamton and they went to Harvard and they were the intellects. And except for the lawyers and the, you know, maybe the finance guys, I came out just as or more successful than all of them. And I think it's, it's, I got the basics in us, we go. I got the, as silly as it sounds, how to live on your own, how to, to be successful on your own, how, how to kick butt. And my liberal arts degree is what gave me all that. So us, we go is here and, and my closest friends in the world. Oh, that's so sweet. All right. So the last question is always this in your Oscar speech after you, you know, get nominated. When I get it from my soap opera. Yes. Lady, lady with yeah. pop, lady with yeah. pop wins <laughs> best, best actress. <laughs> if you were being handed the Oscar, who during your time in Oswego would you thank name names? And I'm talking teachers. It could be students. It could be anybody. Well, I think I would name my friends, Patty and Steve Turk, who are now married, Fran Kauschner and Karen Entwistle, who were my friends for life. I would thank them for being supportive when I cried my first six months and they didn't want to be near me and it was bad. Um, Fritz and Nola, as I said, that were terrific teachers. I can't remember the Spanish teacher's name, but he was amazing. He and his wife both worked there and we still, my friend Karen and I still quote when he would say, okay, now we speak in English because his, his second language was English and he really taught me how to speak I'm not fluent, but I'm close to it because I didn't live in Spain, which I should have. But anyway, so I would thank that teacher and I would thank my parents for sending me to college. And I didn't have to take a loan. I, I They sent me because as long as we went to a state school, they pay for it. And it was a good state education. And I would thank thank them for, for, first of all, making me stay that first semester when I wanted to come home. And for being so supportive and for giving me the card the last the second half of the year, the last semester. They didn't have a, they didn't have two cars because they gave me the car so I could come go up to school with a car and be cool with a car. I mean, who you know, things you think about now when I was I wasn't as nice as I could have been back then to them. So I would definitely thank my folks and the teachers and my friends. Oh. This has been great. Donna, you are such a terrific interview. You really are. And this has been so much fun. The chance to say thank you, Fritz. I'll take that every single time, right? Definitely. Love him. Love him. Love Betsy, who was the former alumni coordinator. I mean, she's and Laura, who does it now. They're just wonderful people. And again, because Oswego is here, you know, it's important to keep those connections. And I'm, I'm happy to have met you as well. So anybody who wants to reach out to Donna, she is on LinkedIn. So you can find her bio there. I noticed you don't have a website. No, I, I think if it was 10 years ago, I would have had a website. But since I said I'm on the I'm on the semi-retirement track now, I don't need a website. People know how to find me if they want me. Awesome. Well, thank you again for all your time. And thank if you, you. And if you want to reach out to us with guest ideas, You can find us on Facebook or LinkedIn or email us at alumni at oswego.edu. We are always looking for ideas from our over 92,000 alumni. I'm Dee Perkins, and we'll see you next time on the Oswego Alumni Podcast.